Chapter 13, The Whisperer Horses, she started. Shelley and I met with two recruits. I know now how well she prepared for our first meeting in front of the White Nationalist House. Shelley had done her homework on me as she did now with these two women. She combed through their digital trails, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, to learn the right buttons and levers to push and pull. We went for a walk on a trail in Woodside, California, that started at a horse stable. Shelley chose the location, and not by accident. I love horses, said the young woman of 26. Do you ride? Shelley asked, knowing the answer. Yes, the woman replied. Beautiful creatures, Shelley continued. I saw a movie once about the horse whisperer. Forgot the name of it. Buck, said the girl. The movie is called Buck. It's by Robert Redford. It's my favorite. Ah, I didn't know that, Shelley lied. There's a striking scene in that movie that I, I very much remember now. In the movie, the horse whisperer is trying to teach a rancher about his horse. He sets up a demonstration. He tells the rancher to grab hold of the reins. So the rancher does so, and wanting to impress the horse whisperer and impose his will on the horse, the rancher does so with great force. And consequently, the horse, Shelley said, as the woman finished her sentence, resists, the girl said. That's right, Shelley replied. The horse resists the strong-handed rancher by jerking its head away. Buck then instructs the rancher to try it again, only this time more gently. He does so softly this time, and the horse doesn't pull away. That's what we're setting out to do, Shelley said, laying the foundation of our movement. We've been locked in this push-pull dynamic for too long. We are shouting past each other, and politicians stoke our divide through wedge issues meant to fire us up and divide us. And now it's starting to spill blood. Some say a second civil war has already started. Domestic terrorism is on the rise, and these are relative good times, at least as far as the economy is concerned. I cringe to think how much worse it could get in a downturn. Another pause. Ironic, Shelley would use the horse whisperer now to recruit for fear and revenge, because in actuality, Buck is the embodiment of compassion and forgiveness. You see, in the movie, Buck talked about his childhood and a father who was a, quote, very scary man. You see, Buck was beaten by his father. Yet somehow, as an adult, he allowed himself to be unguarded with these horses. Some ranchers in the movie said it was Buck's vulnerability and pain that allowed him to whisper to these creatures. So Shelley twisted Buck's story to fit her agenda. It's not the first time in history. Remember when Jeff Sessions quoted from the Bible to support his family separation policies? Sessions said, quote, Persons who violate the law of our nation are subject to prosecution. I would cite you to the Apostle Paul and his clear and wise command in Romans 13 to obey the law of the government because God has ordained them for the purpose of order. So I ask you, Shelley stopped walking and faced the girls, should we try to grab the bridle with even greater force, knowing the resistance will surely meet? Or should we try to loosen our grip and see how they respond? The two recruits soaked in the analogy. 
I was a handful as a teen, said the other woman. It was slightly older, early thirties. And the firmer my parents grasped at me, the further I withdrew. Now I jumped into the conversation. It seems counterintuitive. It's human nature to cling to the things we love. We all love this country, but the firmer we grasp a handful of sand, the faster it spills through your fingers. We want to try something different, I added. It's a bit crazy. We know it. But here's the thing. Trump is actually pretty harmless. Now hear me out. Yes, he is a moron, a loudmouth. He's crass, vulgar, selfish, a liar, a cheat, and a fraud. He's all these things. We're not denying it. But there are still checks and balances keeping him constrained. For all the work he's done to discredit the news media, they still knew everything that was in the Mueller report before it came out. We don't like what's happening either, but the system so far anyway is still working. Now my fear is that someone much more competent than Trump will come along next and do much greater damage. Frankly, I'm less concerned about the next four years than I am the next 20. Trump, in my mind, is tenderizing the field. He's paving the way for someone much more vile. And Trump is our best tool, and I do mean tool, to expose the emptiness of the GOP vision. People's lives are not getting better. Let them watch the trade war fail. Let them watch what happens when the Fed takes orders from a man with four bankruptcies. Let them watch as their safety nets get eroded because low taxes and high defense spending are unable to fund social programs. And let them watch where Republicans control it all. After shaking hands, the two girls peeled off on their own. It was just me and Shelly now. Do you think we'll see them again? I do, Shelly replied. I was curious to know what she thought of my closing arguments to the recruits. Your pitch was good, a little long-winded for my taste, she said. Her feedback stung, but I respected her expertise. Next time, try and find ways of enabling them to draw these conclusions. It just has greater staying power. Leading a horse to water works better than hosing them down. Changing the subject, Shelley asked me about my thoughts on last night's anti-virus rally in Oakland. It was interesting. That is, if you're into wide-eyed idealism with no plan for actual execution, I said dismissively. Shelley laughed. So you don't feel even the slightest conflict? Not at all, I replied. Let's just say I've been waiting a long time to take the road less traveled, if you know what I mean. Now she laughed, really laughed, the big one. Robert Frost, my favorite poem. She's not the only one who can learn a thing or two about someone from their social media accounts. So what's next, I asked. Viv, she said coldly. My heart fluttered. Viv is next. I've gotten to know Shelley well by now. I've seen her mingle footloose and carefree with Nazis, after all. Nothing phases her. No matter the circumstance, she never loses composure. She never tilts her hand or shows her cards, not even in the slightest, until now. Shelley asked, what do you suppose Viv has that is so damaging to Trump? His taxes, I asked. Shelley shook her head. No, that's not it. That's a dead end. There's nothing in his taxes we don't already know about his wealth or lack thereof. 
He doesn't want his college to release his grades for the same reason he doesn't want his taxes to be revealed. It's just vanity, and he won't lose a single supporter over it. What is it then? I said. Her demeanor changed. I saw a muscle in her face contort. The one thing that could actually bring him down, she said. The pee-pee tape. What? It's real? I said in shock. Yes. How do you know? She looked at me, her eyes burning. Because Viv stole it from me. Chapter 14, Spies Like Us. I need to clarify something with the listener. It's time I come clean. Remember the bomb I spoke of earlier? It's not really a bomb. Well, it, it's sort of a bomb, just not the type that goes boom and kills people. You see, the white nationalists have someone on their team who is a high-level engineer at Twitter, which is to say that he's smart and able to write some killer code. Shelley had commissioned him to create a program. Now, oftentimes, malicious software is designed with the intent of stealing or spying on someone. The software does its thing quietly in the background until it finds what it's looking for and then either steals it or demands ransom. Shelley wanted something different. She specifically asked for a program that would simply destroy, obliterate, period. So with this in mind, the creator built the program and christened it the bomb. Shelley had asked me to infiltrate their group and get close to Viv with the main objective of destroying the PP tape. If Shelley couldn't have it, no one would. From Shelley, I had learned why Viv was so smug about her accomplishment in acquiring the tape from her, and furthermore, how she intended to keep it safe. Viv had a laptop, an old one in fact, that didn't even have antivirus software installed to protect it. So why don't we just hack into it, I asked. Because, Shelley replied scornfully, it's not connected to the web. It's basically just a word processor that contains files. And that's why Shelley needed me to go there in person. The bomb was designed so that the moment I inserted a thumb drive into her computer, it would crawl every folder and every file and instantly destroy it. And that's how I became a spy. Now, I've always held this vision, perpetuated by Hollywood, of course, of a sexy foreign female spy who skillfully uses her assets to overwhelm some disgusting white male in a position of power who somehow keeps getting the keys to national secrets despite this obvious flaw in a man's moral integrity. These movies, unfortunately, did very little in the way of providing a blueprint for spying when the gender roles were reversed. I needed the movie where a guy of average intelligence and mediocre looks tries to persuade an intelligent, modern woman in the age of Me Too, no less, and plummeting casual sex to reveal her hidden secrets that would determine the fate of the world for the next four years. If that movie existed, I wasn't aware of it. I looked in the mirror, reviewed my assets, and concluded my prospects were dire. I was straddling two very different worlds, San Francisco and Ohio. And to add to my conflict, I also felt the tug of two very opposing women in my life, Viv and Shelley. In an effort to clear my mind, get some distance, and maybe mend a few bridges, I decided to take a short trip. I booked a flight home, back to Ohio, 
for the first time, took the advice of a new woman in my life. Chapter 15. Two-Face. Meanwhile, Ted Kaczynski and the Dangel in training were taking a little break of their own, a little R&R from the everyday rigors of hell. They watched a movie together, The Avengers, Infinity Wars. It was a good choice because it had plenty of CGI fight scenes for the DIT, but also had a complex villain who was, in some ways, a sympathetic character, and so much as a person can be who succeeds in wiping out 50% of the entire universe. Nevertheless, Ted related to the supervillain, Thanos, who was a man of reason that endeavored to save the future of all races by culling the herd. Do we have to worry about Viv? asked the DIT. Yes, yes we do. She's a threat, Ted replied. In his mind, most women were a threat. Statistics show that men outnumber women in prison by the order of 10 to 1. Researchers debate whether these differences in gender criminality are biological or sociological. Probably both. Ted didn't dwell on the details. He knew from personal experience and his own lonely life in that Montana cabin that a good woman is nature's antidote to the wrongdoing of human men. This truth is highlighted in volume one of Foils to Evil that list women as the number one driving force for good, followed by truth, equality, nature, community, sobriety, and abundance. Does she have a weakness? The DIT asked. They all do. Ted snapped back. He paused, knowing what the DIT would ask next if he didn't offer it up. Her weakness is trust. The movie was ending and the DIT was elated. The movie, which was actually part one of a two-part movie, ended with the success of the bad guy. Who's your favorite supervillain, Ted, the DIT asked. Mine is the Joker. That dude is whack. Ted thought about the question. He actually knew the answer immediately. I like Two-Face, he said with a slight smile. The dude from Batman? Yes, him, Ted continued. He's smart, but not in an intellectual way. There are actually many smarter villains, but he has a philosophy that I, I really love, that I admire. What is it? I'll answer your question with a story. I first heard it in the Taoist tradition, though I think it's been replicated elsewhere. It's about a rancher who has a prize horse. One day, his son left the gate open and the horse ran away. The neighbor observes this event and pities the rancher by saying, you've lost your prize horse, that's terrible news. But the rancher only replies, good news, bad news, who knows. Amazingly, the horse came back in a few days and with it trotted seven more wild horses. Again, the neighbor comes over saying, this is a miracle. You have your horse back and now seven more. Indifferent, the rancher merely says, good news, bad news, who knows. The next week, while the son was trying to tame a wild horse, he was bucked hard and fractured his leg. As a result, he couldn't help harvest the crop and the family starved that winter. The neighbor came over again and, as you guessed it, offered his sympathies. This is most unfortunate. Your son has a broken leg and your family is starving. To which the rancher replied, good news, bad news, who knows. War breaks out that spring and the generals were going door to door to recruit young men to fight for the cause. They had to pass up the son because his leg had not mended. The neighbor came over and said, 
This is great. Your son doesn't have to die in war. To which the rancher replies, Good news, bad news. Who knows? Finish the DIT. What is good? What is bad? If everything was good, well, we'd never learn a thing. We wouldn't grow. Two-Face has a good side and a bad side. That much is obvious given his overt appearance, with half his face burned in an acid accident. But he also carries with him a coin. And when he's faced with a big decision, he flips that coin high, letting it decide, 50-50. Some might say he's leaving it up to fate, but I'd argue Two-Face is wise enough to know that the outcomes of certain actions or inactions are not nearly as predictable as we so desperately want to believe. Chapter 16, Back Home. I touched down in Ohio two days ago. It was awkward on multiple fronts. My family knew I was upset, but they also knew the pitfalls of trying to explain their vote or apologize for the behavior of he who should not be named. Besides, they were grown adults who resented the very notion of justifying anything to their children. We decided on a truce, no politics. I already wasted two years trying to rationalize with people I thought I knew. Old friends, mostly. Never ended well. It's futile as debating religion. I'll admit, it was hard for me to cast aside my judgments in Ohio, which says as much about me as it does them. Even my brother-in-law was on good behavior, though I attributed that entirely to nature's best antidote to shitty men. My sister kept him in line. All in all, it was a good trip. I might even say it helped redeem some hope. At the very least, it felt like a step in the right direction. Before leaving, I stopped by an old friend's house. His name was Craig Miller. He was a cowboy, wore a hat and all, got married in a pair of freshly pressed Wranglers, if I recall correctly. We used to play ball together. He was the best on the team, a gifted athlete and a natural leader. Natural because he never sought it, never claimed it. He just did his thing. Those around him knew he was the top dog because he never had to boast or jockey or make grand gestures of status. An alpha knows he's an alpha, and when done right, he never has to prove it. Well, look what the cat drug in he said. I went to shake his hand, but he wrapped his big arms around me in a bear hug instead. What brings you so far away from the big city? Home, I said. Ah, he replied. Does it still feel that way? He said, wondering. Yeah, I said, though not very convincingly. He shook his head and smiled. Talking to your folks again, he asked. Craig wasn't on social media. He was too busy with life to get bogged down with news and the everyday pettiness that consumes most of us. Around this town, you didn't need to look at someone's social media profile to know what's going on in their lives. Yes, I'm talking to my parents again, I said exhaustedly. Have you heard from Hudgy lately? Me, Craig, and Jason Hudgens, or Hudgy, were a trio back in high school, but Hudgy had fallen on hard times recently taking up drugs and crime. No, Craig replied. Craig had tried to help Hudgy. That's just who Craig was, but his efforts fell short. Craig didn't fail at many things he set his mind to, but he learned something with Hudgy. Can't force someone to change, no matter how sound your logic. There are limits to what we can do for others. 
can't help someone who isn't ready to help themselves. I felt some guilt over Hudgy. We butted heads on social media. Hudgy used every ounce of strength to lobby for Trump. I eventually cut him off. I unfriended him. May have even used some harsh words in the end. Some might say I was justified that at some point people need to cut out negativity in their lives and avoid those who otherwise drag us down. The other side of the argument, though, is that Hudgy was hurting. And as we all know, hurt people hurt people. Maybe it was a cry for help. Maybe I could have listened better. I don't know. I was hurting, too. Regardless, I took no pleasure in hearing our old friend was in dire straits. We were quite a trio back then. First, second, and third in the lineup, Craig replied, referring to our batting order in baseball. Catcher, pitcher, first base, I replied. You know what I admired most about you on the baseball diamond, I said? Can't wait to hear this, Craig said dismissively, never one to accept compliments of any kind. You never argued with the ump, he laughed. The rest of the team, including grown adults and coaches even, they'd go ballistic if a call was made against us. But you, you were always respectful. Craig didn't reply, just threw his hands up. Most of the time, the ump would make the right call, in fact, and people were just pissed because it either went against us or we were just plain losing. Craig chuckled. He saw through me. We're still talking about baseball here, he said. I came clean. Well, I could never throw one past you, could I? No, you could not, he agreed. I loved him. I loved Craig so much at that moment. He was everything I wanted us to be again. He worked hard, never complained, always respectful, even in the face of unfairness, full of faith. He was everything I wanted to be, then and now. So what does he want to say, he said directly. He wasn't one to beat around the bush. He and I didn't land on the same side of the political spectrum on many issues, but I could always talk to Craig about anything. Oh, don't get me wrong, he was never enthusiastic about my take on politics or the environment or relationships, but he listened, never arrogant, and usually had some pearls of wisdom to pass along. Simple stuff. I wish you would talk to people around here more, I said. I talk to them plenty, more than you, I imagine. You know what I mean. Oh, you mean politics, he said. Yes, I said, because it's brought you so much joy. You got me there, I said. No, no, it's not been fun, I said. He saw the pain in me. He eased up on the ribbing. You know me, he said, which was translation for, it's all just noise. There's more important things in life than the daily bickering. I do know you very well. I've seen you call balls and strikes. You're objective. I'd just like to see more of that around here. Craig absorbed my observation, thought a moment. Why me? I mean, you have all the same traits as I do. You're objective. You're fair. Yes, I, I think I am too, but there's a big difference between you and I. There's one glaring thing that keeps me from ever reaching anyone in these parts any longer. Is it that cute knit beanie on top of your head? No, I said. Your skinny jeans? Sort of. It's because I'm, you know, the L word, I said in code. Lesbian? No, you idiot. I'm a liberal, I said. Oh, for God's sake, he said dismissively. Laugh all you want, but the messenger matters, I exclaimed. You and I could use the exact same words, but our message will be received very differently 
because of the label on our voter registration. Your hand is stamped. You can reach people around here in ways I can't. It's the truth. You're still one of them. There's nothing I can do. I've tried everything. No comment this time. He knew I was right. I'm just saying, if we're going to start moving toward each other again, it needs to come from people on the inside. I just push them away further. I know you don't want this responsibility, but your voice carries a lot more weight than mine does. I do my part, he said, a bit defensively now. I'm working. I'm teaching my kids. I vote, he said. Why do I have to get mixed up in this garbage? I'm not questioning you, Craig. I'd never doubt you. I affirmed, you are teaching your kids right from wrong. And I know those kids are going to work their asses off someday. They probably already are. But here's the thing, whether we like it or not, the truth is your kids' quality of life will be impacted by what happens to everybody else in the next 20 years. It sucks. I agree. Trust me. I long for the days when we just had to worry about our own shit and everybody else would worry about theirs. But we both grew up here. It wasn't very good then. It's certainly not gotten better. And there's no reason to believe tomorrow is going to be any different. The reality is, you and I and our kids someday will need everyone around these parts to do better than they are right now. He didn't like it. It went against his motto. Head down, work hard, shut up, do good, then die. Like me, he subscribed to the belief that one of the greatest achievements in life is to leave things better than when you got it. It was hard to look around us these days and convince ourselves that we were making any headway on that mantra. You know what I think we all need, he said. What's that, I replied. I think we could all use to talk a hell of a lot less, I laughed. You mean like a national shut the fuck up day? Exactly. We had a laugh. We needed it. Look, I'm not blind, he said. As, as much as I try to avoid it, I see it too. How could you not? Now he was admitting something that was eating at him. I, uh, he started reluctantly. What's most surprising to me, what's most disappointing is, it's not just the people who are down on their luck. What do you mean? I replied, well, I hear stupid shit, racist things from people I never would have suspected. People who should probably be a little more grateful for what this country helped them achieve. It's our leadership, he said, resistant to take on the subject. They're bringing out the worst in people, giving them permission to. He trailed off. I was taken aback, really aback. For some unconscionable reason, I did not fully appreciate this reality. I guess I made myself believe that the ugliest behavior from people was coming from those who were struggling mightily as if it was an excuse or a way for me to forgive them. But this, this was a new wrinkle. A study from the University of Iowa on April 22, 2019 showed that Iowa had more counties flipped from Democrat to Republican than any other state in the 2016 election. The research concluded that the change had very little to do with economic anxiety and rather more to do with rurality, education, and race, or to put it another way, nativism. Craig carried a gun. He had a permit to carry, and if anyone in this country was a good guy with a gun, Craig was it. He took firearm courses, he took training. He did not take this responsibility lightly. 
So it struck me now that Craig would consider risking his life to confront a criminal with a gun, yet in the face of someone using racist language, he could turn a blind eye. We talked for another 20 minutes, during which time we tried to lighten the mood. I had to catch a flight back. You come visit me someday in San Francisco, I said, getting in the car. There's something called the Folsom Street Fair I think you'd like. Craig didn't have the slightest clue what the fair was about, which was S&M. But he knew enough to know it wasn't for him. Not likely, he said. Fine, then how about fly fishing in Colorado? Maybe, he said. It's halfway between us, and it's a purple state. Take care of yourself. And he meant it. I had mixed emotions boarding the plane. Thoughts of home, its trajectory, its future. As we took off, I noticed someone wearing a t-shirt. It read, It's probably not your fault, but I'm going to blame you anyway. I noodled on that slogan during the ride to San Francisco, my new home.